We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. We have two special guests today on ROG, David Hankin and Thomas Bertels. David Hankin is an accomplished executive and entrepreneur with a proven record of success in prominent global companies as well as startups, an expert in architecting and implementing innovative business strategies and solutions, improving performance, profitable possibilities, and developing organizational capabilities through a collaborative growth approach. Thomas Bertels is the president and founder of Purpose Works, a management consulting firm on a mission to make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. He has 25 years of experience working with companies ranging from Fortune 10 firms to startups to improve organizational effectiveness and transform how work gets done. What I appreciate most about both of you is your commitment to fixing what is broken at work. Welcome to ROG, David and Thomas. Thank you, Shannon. It's wonderful to be here. Appreciate it. Delighted to be here. Well, let's jump right in. So Purpose Works Consulting's tagline is that work is broken. Let's change that. Together, you wrote this book called Fixing Work, a tale about designing jobs that employees love. I'm just curious to get your thoughts on the idea behind the book and what you have picked up that is broken at work. Maybe I can start briefly just by saying the basic idea behind the book is, as you said, that in many organizations, work is broken. Engagement is low. Turnover is increasing. One of the underlying causes is that when leaders make decisions about how work gets done, they don't think about what we as humans want from work, meaning, autonomy, feedback. The management science behind the parable is motivational work design. Can we think of employees as customers of the work? So many job descriptions are copy-paste, and so many jobs today don't attend to those key factors that drive engagement, purpose, autonomy, feedback. We hear about the great resignation, quiet quitting. You know, the latest Gallup survey says 60% of employees are quiet quitting. Leaders are pining for approaches. This book should answer those calls. How about you, Thomas? What are your thoughts, and what are some of the symptoms that you have identified when you think of work as being broken? Yeah, uh, I think a couple of symptoms that I think many people see in their work environment. Uh, I think one is that processes are just enormously complex. Right? It takes right, 20, 30 people to, for example, hire a new employee. Um, the result, I think, of that complexity is oftentimes that accountability is like dissipates. Right? When something goes wrong, right now there are 29 people that point the fingers at each other. So I think that's one factor. Uh, I think the underlying root cause, as David has said, is that we really don't make good intentional decisions about how we structure work uh, to factor in what, what people need from that. And we're kind of like stuck like, in a Tayloristic model that says, let's break every end-to-end job, a task to be done for a customer into many, many small bits and pieces and organize that into right, 15 different departments. And as a result of that, I think we're really destroying, I think, the opportunity for people to experience meaning in their work because they're just doing a small thing. They don't see the entire work product. Um, they don't have line of sight to the customer. Mm. So for our listeners that are hearing this and can totally relate to that kind of pain and they themselves feel disengaged or they are leading teams that are experiencing these kinds of problems, you know, to think about 
breaking it down and rebuilding it feels overwhelming. What, what would be some of the practical things that you would recommend? Yeah, I think the first starting point is to, to just look at really all the work that's being done in a particular organization. Let's say it's a department, right? And then you're the manager of a department. I think the first step would probably be to really take an inventory of all the work being done. And what you oftentimes find is that there are a lot of tasks that really have nothing to do with like the core mission of the department, but they're sort of, you know, management type tasks, right? We track like the productivity of people, we have reports and so forth. Uh, and then there's oftentimes that, that work oftentimes doesn't really get challenged anymore, right? We've been doing this the same way, right? For the last five years, we just keep doing it. So the first opportunity, I think, is really to get a bit of work that doesn't serve a purpose anymore. And then I think that the next step is really to, to put Humpty Dumpty back together, right? We've broken jobs into small little pieces. Can we have one person do the entire job or can we have a team of people own the entire task from start to finish. People, for example, create little cells or parts, right? Uh, and then the next step is to say, okay, now that we get people that own an entire work product, can we give them accountability for a part of the mission, for example? Can we make them accountable for a customer segment or for a product line, right? And then can we open up the feedback channels to the customer so when people do the work, they actually know how they're doing, right? When it comes to feedback, so that the best, the best uh, strategy is really to structure the work so that people know when they're doing the task, whether they're doing a good job or not. Right? So if that's not possible, right, the next best thing is, I think, is to open channels to the customers so the customers can give us feedback and say, hey, you know, this didn't work. The, the, the least effective way, I think, is quite frankly, is having the manager provide the feedback because that oftentimes only happens one, two, three times a year. Right? And so that's really not, not effective to give people feedback. So those are some practical things people can do. Beyond that, I think uh, a really simple thing is just to rethink the use of technology in the workplace. And what I mean by that is like when you look at knowledge work or office work, we oftentimes really rely on, on email or, or, or uh, um, uh, you know, messaging tools to coordinate work. And that's oftentimes a very uh, uh, disruptive way to do that because right now people get pinged every two seconds and they constantly lose their train of thought. So when it comes to knowledge work where you really got to sink into a task, right? A, a really simple job design strategy could be to minimize the disruptions. So there's a range of options available for people. It doesn't mean that you've got to, you know, go through like a fundamental, right? Everybody gets a new job type situation. I think it's also important, I think, to be very targeted in that. So one of the things that we do is we do a diagnostic that, that really looks at how people experience the work and, and it's like what's missing, right? What's the missing ingredient? And that oftentimes allows to really zero in on very specific factors. Is it that people don't have enough variety? Is it that people don't have enough autonomy in the job? And can we change those things in a very targeted surgical fashion? And let me also just add briefly, it, it, it really, in many instances, it, it takes a leader willing to see beyond the status quo that Thomas was mentioning. You know, the so-called triple win is actually possible. And I can certainly tell you from direct experience, but it takes people leaders willing to wanting to improve for their employees, for their, for, for the customer, their customers and for the company itself. The rewards are there. The evidence is overwhelming. So it really starts with these leaders, those of us listening to, to ask ourselves, are we the kind of leaders who are willing to look at the inconvenient truth of what is actually happening and what could we do? And even if this feels really disruptive and uncomfortable, like that actually might be a sign that you're onto something. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I think leaders really play a crucial role here, right? Because they make those decisions. It's like, you know, who gets to do what, how that work gets coordinated. And unfortunately, people don't get a lot of training, right? We, we barely, quite frankly, mm. put people to, to lead others, right? Oftentimes, right? we get the best performer <laughs> being promoted. And, you know, they just yeah. don't have the people skills, right? But even beyond that, right? What actually makes a well-designed job? It's not in any 
management curriculum that I'm aware of, right? Maybe people touch on on, on on some of the research when it comes to like an operations class in business school, but by and large, people get no training in this. So they make ad hoc decisions, as David said, they copy and paste the job descriptions that they already had, right? So as a result of that, we kind of like perpetuate like old Tayloristic models into infinity, right? Because we're always saying, oh, mm -hmm. customer service person, right? They, right? In the old model, they weren't accountable for anything. In the new model, they're not going to be accountable either, right? Because we just copied the job. Um, but the other piece of that is this is not something that a leader can do by themselves in a conference room and start right, restructuring the works like, on a piece of paper. It really is a team sport. I think if you want people to really be involved in, in the workplace, they've got to have their hand in the design. And they oftentimes know where the issues are, right? I mean, it's like there's like this, this idea of like the iceberg of ignorance, right? So leaders only know 4% of the issues, employees know 100% of the issues, right? We got we to gotta tap into that because uh, A, it makes, I think, the, the solution more robust, right? Nobody washes a rental car, right? So people, right, people don't take care of the workers if they had no way in shaping this. And the second piece is, again, it's like, you know, you oftentimes leaders don't really know all the things that are being done. And so I think you really end up with like a better design and a higher level of acceptance if you do it together with the employees that are impacted by those decisions. You know, startups are so fascinating, uh, you know, just as a, as a contrast point. More often than not in a startup, whether you're in a garage or you're in, you're in a smaller space, you, you've got everybody in one in one spot. They know what the purpose is. There isn't a cash cow yet to, yet to protect. You know, feedback from the work itself generally is more available versus you know, versus a manager uh, delivering the feedback. When a firm gets large enough to start splitting into departments, you know, moving parts of the work upstairs, downstairs, around the globe, we start replicating job descriptions, engagement drops, outcomes suffer. And, and that's where the, the, the fixing work dynamic we're discussing really shows up. Have you seen it work where a team decides to, you know, pull a apart their processes and operationalize this in a new way together collaboratively. And then that prototype, so to speak, plays itself out into the organization. I mean, have you seen companies who have willing leaders, but maybe not organizationally bought into this idea, apply what you're talking about? Yeah, I can give you a practical example, right? Um, we did a project with especially pharmacy, right? So if you uh, have a condition where you, for example, need a drug that needs to be infused, right? So then you need a nurse to infuse it. Um, for example, if you're a hemophiliac, right? You, you'll, you'll need that. Um, so we work with this client. And basically the way it worked in the past was that, you know, the doctor would write a prescription and the patient would call it in. And then, you know, somebody would verify the benefits and, you know, that would take a week, right? Somebody would like, schedule the nurse and that would take another week. Um, somebody would like, pull together the equipment and ship that out. That would take another week, right? So now we're three or four weeks later. Um, now, now some of these medications are, are truly life-saving, right? So that's that's a long time. And so patients, oftentimes, right, if they don't get what they need right away, they go somewhere else. So what we did is, in that case, we took these four different departments and really created like a team that that owned the patient case from start to finish. So now when you would call in, it was like a warm transfer, right? They would all sit around the table, right? And so all these handoffs, all the lost time disappears. Um, and, you know, then you realize that as you set up the first part, right, right other teams want to right, have the same experience. So they start to apply the same logic, but maybe they need to make some changes, right? Maybe for their condition, it needs to work a little differently, right? So I think I think one of the ideas really behind work design is that, you know, you, you need that employee ownership. So it doesn't, it's not necessarily something that you can copy paste across the organization, right? People got to have a little skin in the game. Um, but, but, you know, it it's definitely can be done and we've seen that scale dramatically. But the other point is, quite frankly, it, it's difficult to do this like in this guerrilla way from the bottom up, right? 
I think it, it's much easier and quite frankly, much more effective if really the more senior leadership is bought in. And quite frankly, they also play a role, right? They got to clearly define like what the mission critical work is and how the organization wants to compete. So work design oftentimes comes into play when companies mess with part of how the work gets done already. Right? We're introducing new technology. We need to change the process. We want to realign from a product-centric model to like a customer-centric model. Right? So we're really changing how the work gets done. That is, I think, a huge opportunity to say, as we are messing with the work, let's again add this additional layer to it to also consider what the work experience for the employee is and make decisions that factor yeah. that in. And, and you know, I, just to build on the example, again, I've been fortunate to be at both larger firms and startups and have the, the domain to design, if you will, you know, because, you know, it's so formative. Designing jobs is is part of the fun. Um, and whether it's hundreds of people in a service organization or SaaS technology firms or managed services teams, autonomy, feedback, meaning, skill, variety, entirety, or being able to see the whole thing from start to finish as we see technology continue to advance in the workplace. You know, I've, I've been able to see that triple win in action. So rewarding on so many levels. Oh, I love that. And I imagine that there's ROI associated with this, right? You know, you've seen it in practical examples in the business partnerships that you have had. You know, what can you tell us about how you've fixed what's broken in terms of, you know, employee turnover and lost work and productivity and all of those things? You get a higher level of employee engagement and you get a better customer experience. So on the employee side, right, when, when work is well designed, turnover drops next to nothing. Right? People who, who have a well-designed job are not willing to give that up to go back into like a classical functional model where they just do little bits and bobs. Right? And that's huge, right? I mean, a lot of organizations um, really don't don't uh, see the whole cost of turnover. Right? But if you've got a 20, 25% turnover rate and it takes you three or six months to get a new person up to speed, I think that's a huge number and a huge opportunity. Uh, more productive work, right? Because you eliminate non-value tasks, you eliminate handoffs, right? You, you reduce the complexity, you create a higher level of accountability um, that that improves productivity, and then the customer experience, right? Because now customers deal with a group of employees that is empowered and able to address their issues, right? Versus people handing you over right from one person to the next. And I think another benefit to it that's more indirect, but as you create these these teams and they own the job from start to finish. You actually need a lot less supervision to tell people what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and check whether they've done it, right? So oftentimes organizations really see that this uh, technology allows them to reduce the number of layers. And and so that can be, right? again, managers tend to be a little bit more expensive than the workers, right? That can be a, a really significant effect. And I was going to add a similar point, you know, that managers themselves actually benefit from well-designed work, just, just to build on Thomas's point, at least as much as the employees. Because they now have to do less tracking, planning, checking, reviewing, but it's also a different leadership model. You know, it's more of an more of an indirect control model, which actually employ the employee experience tells us we they they employees appreciate that more. It's sort of the opposite of the Peter principle in a way. HR leaders are are, are responding fairly well, and you know we've got a couple of reviewers of of uh, from an HR perspective in the book because it really presents a, a, a different and more enabling leadership approach. Mm. David, just to double back on Peter principle for our listeners who are not familiar with that, would you mind explaining what that is and then how fixing work is the opposite? Sure. The Peter Principle, you know, it's based on a book and it essentially shows how individual contributors are, are are elevated to increasing levels of competence, ultimately into management roles to do things that are quite different than than what their true competence was in, in the beginning. 
And in many ways, it mistakes the role of, of a leader to be one of a, of a macro doer, uh, you know, the, the super doer. And the roles of management really are quite different. And, you know, if you think of a manager as someone who helps control the work for, uh, versus the fixing work approach gives you an opportunity to really uh, enable the employees to best do the work for them to see the meaning, the purpose, the feedback from the work itself, rather than the supervisor being the arbiter of the work. The employees themselves get direct feedback from the work so they can self-correct, for example. They don't have to throw something over the wall and wonder, is it correct or not? Um, they really get to see it in its entirety. And most people, when they see something isn't exactly how it should be, they want to fix it themselves. It's far more efficient to say, wait a second, uh, you know, I actually have providence to help help address this myself directly. And it also feels better. It's not a, a great analogy, but but one that I've shared with Thomas sometimes, you know, we, we have uh, we, we have a dear friend in common who, who worked on a, a sandwich assembly line. And, uh, you know, this is where if you can imagine, you know, one person's throwing the bread, one person's throwing the lettuce, one person's throwing the tomato. And, you know, this was this was the, the bologna person. And, you know, you know, after after, you know, every day, you know, piling on the bologna. Right. And, you know, if, if you can contrast that. And again, this isn't a perfect analogy, but if you build the whole sandwich, you then get to deliver that to the to the the end user, if you will, and you get to see them enjoy it. And the experience of being able to, 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 to work through the, the exercise in its entirety has an enormous amount of difference. And the, 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 the Peter principle coming back to the management approach to really uh, move to that indirect control orientation as a leader. Oh, that's such a great, I, I think it's a great analogy. I think it would play in a variety of ways because you're talking about baloney. <laughs> um, but I think it helps us to remember that if we were really to be involved start to finish, how much more would we care about the other elements and then the overall user experience and how innovative might we become in making it better and finding efficiencies or even just making more uh, opportunities to delight that end user in, in a new way. So I, I love that idea. Um, Thomas, you've mentioned technology a few times. Curious to hear specifically what you mean when you're saying technology. Yeah, I think um, technology is, is about the systems that we use to enable work, right? And I think in, in today's world, we oftentimes talk about software, right? Um, so let's say ERP systems or CRM systems, right? Or right, AI, right? I guess it's the, the latest in, in, that, uh, in that piece. Email and, and documents, right, are also part of the technology. Um, mm-hmm. And I think over the last 30 years, um, leaders, I think, increasingly look at technology as like the silver bullet, right? Things don't work anymore, not efficient, right? Let's just rip out the ERP, the ERP system and put a new one in there, right? And so now we ended up with these stacks and stacks of technology that in many uh, cases actually inhibit work design, right? I mean, anybody who I think has rolled out like a, a package technology solution, I think, has realized that, you know, the way that works tends to work best from an implementation perspective is to take the package and implement it as is, right? No customizations, nothing, right? Uh, take the vanilla solution. So you, you lead with the technology, you, you force your processes to fit into that technology, and then you start to think about how do I sell it to the people who are impacted by that, right? So the people are kind of like the, the last in line, right? We call it people process technology, but it's actually technology process and then maybe people. And I think, again, I think that has, uh, that has real problems. Right? One, we don't really design work uh, to maximize what people can do. And secondly, we end up with solutions that are kind of like, you know, again, then we have the same vanilla approach in every organization. How do you get competitive advantage from that? Right? So I think in my view, oftentimes technology really becomes a roadblock. It also becomes really difficult to rip these systems out. Right? Once you put them in place, 
I try to replace that with something else or you know, try to make changes becomes virtually impossible, right? The money is gone, the budget's gone, the team is gone, right? So, so oftentimes I find is that when you go into organizations that the technology really is the major pain point where, where people say, you know, I'm, 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 right, I'm, I'm doing this transaction, but because of the permissions I have, I, I can't take it any further, right? I got to ship it up for, for approval. And so I, I think, again, leaders got to really think about when they make those decisions about technology is to, to bring the human perspective in there and say, how can we configure this technology so that people actually might experience the work as meaningful rather than see themselves as human middleware that sits between systems and, and has to copy paste data. Artificial intelligence is in the you know is in the news and you know whether it's ChatGPT or Bard or or these other large language models, people are beginning to uh, experiment both in very some constructive and productive ways, um, but usually very process driven ways about how can artificial intelligence be used to aid the existing work as it currently sits. You really don't read a lot and something that, that you know, we've made advocations for uh, elsewhere is like really think about think about the work design itself before you begin to pile technology, even more technology into it. Um, and this is often, you know, if you if you if you automate a bad process, you just have a faster bad process um, or a more automated bad process. If you really take a step back and instead of a, a simply a mechanistic approach, look at a humanistic approach, you're going to find that the posture of technology can be enabled quite differently. Ah, oh, that's that's so thought provoking. And I'm thinking about the organizations who create those technologies that you were referring to and how they could use the motivational work design process to customize the technology that they make available to customers so that it could be leveraged specifically for the outcomes at that organization wants. And I've also heard you mention the mission, right? So that organizations can be more mindfully aligned with their mission and empower teams to lead in a way that also is most conducive to fulfilling the the purpose and the mission of that organization. And it feels an awful lot like a much more generous approach uh, to play on on the the generosity. It seems like a far more generous approach to think about this triple win. You know, can we improve the experience for our employees, improve the outcomes for our our customers, and, you know, in in net effect, improve the the, the quality of of life and the stakeholder considerations for the organizations itself? Yeah, maybe maybe just to to lay one thing on, I think I think it's really a mindset shift, right? I think we can look at employees as capital that we own or resources that we use, or we can look at them as the customers of the work or even as the investors of skills. Um, and, and if you flip that around, right, then you say, gee, you know, how do we build a work product that really people want to buy, right? Jobs that people want to do. Uh, where they want to invest themselves in an organization. And we'll need people, right? Even if we apply AI to the max, somebody has to train these large language models, right? And to David's point, that only is going to allow us to satisfy today's business. What about imagine new markets, new businesses? AI is not going to do that, right? And so again, if we paint ourselves into a corner and we over-automate, um, we, we pay the price later on. And we've all seen that, right? And, and people experience it every day. Right, you're dealing with these chatbots, and and you can't get an answer, and there's no right. You can't get a person on the phone uh, to deal with these issues, right? And and I think organizations they oftentimes don't see the customer churn, they don't see the right employee turnover. That's the result of that. But you know, once you actually start to right, peel the onion a little bit, the numbers are staggering, right? I mean, if you look at customer turnover, right, it's like if you lose twenty percent of your customers because they can't get a question answered. Right. It, it costs you a lot of money to acquire them, right? You might want to keep them, right? How about empowering the people 
that right they're supposed to take care of the customers to actually be able to do their job absolutely i mean that's that those are some of the big questions i think that people are trying to answer and i think another overwhelming consideration is like how could we create jobs that are so fulfilling in such a personalized way. So how do you cope with deep human variation when you're talking about creating jobs that are intrinsically motivating? I think that's a huge, uh, I think that's a huge point. Um, so a lot of people, people want meaningful work, right? Uh, I think that's universal. Um, but some people have a higher growth need than others, right? A lot of people have a job, they just need a job to pay the bills, right? They're a jazz musician, and so they need something that they can do with their eyes closed, right, from nine to five, and they preserve all their mental energy and capacity for when they go on stage at, at 7.30, right? So not everybody wants, wants that job, but I think understanding what people want from work and design the work accordingly, um, I, I think, makes a lot of sense, right? And, and again, it's like, I think studies have been around for, you know, 50, 60 years, right? We know that people want meaningful work, they want autonomy, they want to know how they're doing, right? Um, Again, right? some people want that more than others. So I think if you kind of like redesign jobs and you have like a mission critical role in your organization, let's say underwriters, right? I think you want to make this the best underwriter job possible because right, that's, the, that's the key resource, that's the key element that you need in your model. Right? Maybe the janitor doesn't need to ha have the most highly motivating job in the world. But again, it would also be nice right, if we think about right, for everybody, right, how do we maximize like the the, the positive experience that people can get from work. We spend an awful lot of time at work, right? People work eight, 10, 12 hours a day. I, I, it's a little bit, I think, quite frankly, a humanistic issue, right? How can we, like, you know, have people sit through 10 hours of drudgery when, you know, we could actually, right, make this a much more rewarding experience. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't take an act of God to do so, right? I think it just takes some careful design and employee engagement, and, and, you know, a little bit of like empathy, I think, really for, you know, the, the people that sit below you and, and, you know, do the work of the organization. And it, 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 it reminiscent a little bit about, it's a fairly popular Christopher Wren story about the bricklayers, uh, which, which folks may have heard. And this, this is about the, the, the rebuilding of St. Paul's Cathedral hundreds of years ago. But he, he goes by as he's supervising the architecture. He's the architect. He's supervising uh, kind of the, the, the plans and he sees bricklayers who are beginning to build, uh, you know, the, the foundation. And he sees a few of them and he asks you know, the first one, what is he doing? And he says, well, I'm moving stones. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm moving these you know stones from over there to over there. And he sees a, a second individual and says, what are you doing? And he says, well, you know, I'm, I'm earning a paycheck. I got a family. I got, you know, I got stuff to do. And, you know, finds a third person. What are you doing? And he says, well, you know, I'm building a cathedral. You know, like I know what I'm doing. Uh, this thing's going to be incredible when it's all done. Do you have any idea? And I think part of Thomas's point is it takes all kinds, right? I mean, they're they're, they're all they're all in in the workforce, if you will. But the, the the work design approach makes the purpose accessible to everyone. It, it opens the humanistic window for everyone to step through. And you know that, that that invitation is part of why you know the research on this is fifty years old. I mean, it's been around you know for decades. And we know that when engagement goes up, you know, employee employee retention goes up, and you know the the, the uh, customer outcomes go up. And so, you know, the 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 to open the space for you know the the vision and the purpose, and you know, as many as as many of the folks to come and build the cathedral uh, as possible is inherent in the approach, and that's why the research is so compelling. excellent. I love that, and I think it goes back to that purpose and and clarity and and that whole how, how could we 
customize the approach. So there's a couple of things that our listeners can do to further understand more about designing work and the work that the two of you have put together and fixing work and uh, really enjoying your book. So one of the things that everyone can do is go to your website. So if you want to share a little bit about how they can find you online. Yes, for sure. They, they can find us at, at fixing-work.com. Yeah. So if you go to fixing-work.com, you find a lot about the book and a couple of resources and they have a podcast contact information and the book is coming out soon. It's going to be available on September 12th. So please get yourself a copy of that. Another thing that people can do is on the resources tab, you know, if you scroll down, people can go to the Mojo assessment. So there's a survey that people can take to help them to figure out how well designed are their jobs. Could you just tell us a little bit about the Mojo survey and, you know, what are the components of it and the utility of it? Sure. Um, so the Mojo survey, right, giving credit where credit is due, is, is largely based on uh, the Hackman Oldham work uh, that's known as like the Job Diagnostic Survey, right? That was developed in the 1970s, I think, under a grant of the U.S. government, and it basically uh, identified the factors that account for meaningful work and and uh, provide a vehicle for measuring that, right? So that you know how people experience their work. And the outcome of the of the uh, Mojo survey is, I think, one in over, overall score that tells you to what extent, like, what's the motivational potential of this job based the way based on how it is designed, right? And some jobs are just poorly constructed, so your ability to, to feel motivated is fairly low, right? Um, uh, what we've done is we added the technology component to this because, again, when the tool was developed in the seventies, there was no technology to speak of, right? Uh, that has certainly changed, and so nowadays. As we talked about earlier, right? Really, technology shapes, I think, uh, to, a, to a very significant degree how we experience the work. So we updated the model, we revalidated it. How we use the survey normally is like with a client when you say, you know, let's get everybody in the organization, that's where we want to drive change, to take the survey. And then it gives us, I think, a very clear heat map as to like where the issues are. Right. So you can break it down and say, you know what, in the finance function, right, the weak point is variety, right? Or in the sales function, right? You got a big issue around around autonomy, right? So, so again, it allows that thing to overall see, it's like a little bit like a, uh, like a scan, right? You know, is there, is there something wrong? And if the answer is yes, what is wrong? And that also points you towards what a solution might look like, right? So if people don't get feedback, is there a way we can open up the feedback channels, right? If people don't have autonomy, right, can we drive decision-making down in the organization? So it is a, it is a useful corollary, but you also got to then, right, also dive into the work processes, right? So it's not that, this is not like a paint by numbers exercise, right? but I think the, the diagnostic, I think, gives you a sense for like, is there an opportunity? How big do we think it is? And what specifically could we do? And that oftentimes then informs like a, a larger redesign effort. Thank you for that. That's such a great overview. So there are six components to this survey. Consider implementing this in your organizations and inviting Thomas and David to come and help you diagnose where the pain points are and what are some potential design solutions that might help you overcome those challenges. Just thank both of you for finding a way to wrap your arms around this robust topic that could feel overwhelming, I think, if you didn't have models and constructs the way that you've designed them. Fixing Work, this new book that's coming out in September, is a leadership fable. It helps you to understand a team through a really creative way of relating to these individuals that you write about, and they have experiences like the kind we've heard in this conversation today. And then 
solutions to those challenges. So I really invite all of you listeners to, to take stock in that. And some a couple of other notes that I have for key takeaway tips is one is to take inventory of the work being done. That's where you started off, Thomas, with like, let's just start there. What is the work that's being done here? And pull the pieces apart and really analyze like what is still useful? What is, is there a more innovative way that we could do this? And then that whole putting Humpty Dumpty back together again is like, if we were going to reconstruct this, you know, what are some smart ways that we would do that? And then another point that came up a lot in this conversation was around feedback and how are people getting feedback? How could the work itself provide individuals with feedback? Um, so finding new ways to do that. Uh, what else would you share with... Oh, you know, one other thing would be the mindset shift. I thought that was a key thing that you said is like, how are we shifting our beliefs or interpretations of who an employee is? You know, is this someone who's just enabling us to get a job done? Or is this a uniquely skilled individual with talents that we haven't tapped yet? How could we leverage that that talent internally? I liked how you said the investor of skills. What else could you offer our listeners for practical ways to apply what they've heard you talk about today? I mean, the starting point, I think, right, should really be to understand, is there an opportunity, right? Um, and 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 I think the, the inventory of, of the work being done, I think, is, is one piece. Um, I think the other piece is really to look at your metrics and, and see, you know, employee turnover, right? engagement. A lot of companies use engagement surveys. Um, is that as, as, as good as it could be? And if the answer is, no, right, then it's probably worthwhile looking at it. Because again, it's like I think that's a huge opportunity. Right. And and I think every manager, right, who has to like, you know, constantly replace employees, right, and spend their time in countless interviews and looking at hundreds of resumes, right? I, I think there's an opportunity to have a less transactional approach to work and see people as like widgets, right? And and a more transformational approach that says, like, you know, we can actually structure work so it delivers a positive, motivating experience for people. So that people actually want to be here and contribute to the success of the organization, I invested in that. And how can you, as a leader, kind of like turn your back on that? Right? I, I, that's like I think for me. And it, again, it's like it doesn't have to be right. Throw everything away and you know start with a clean sheet of paper. Right? We can we can take baby steps. Right? We can take small steps. Right? It's like you don't need to get it right on the first attempt. Right? It's a journey. Right? It's also we we we, we I think we also kind of created this model where the leaders do all the decisions, the employees just shut up and do the work, right? And I think that becomes a real drain, I think, on the leaders because they're constantly got to like, you know, right? It's like tinker with it, right? I think if we can broaden the accountability and, and make everybody part of this, I think or work workflows become much more agile, organizations become much more dynamic, right? And again, what worked today will not work tomorrow, right? So we also got to build that agility into how the work gets done. Yeah. And I would just add, maybe in closing, you know, just having having sat in those organizations, both public and private, you know, startups and global companies, there's so many competing priorities. What makes this really different is this, firstly, that this triple win, employees, customers, and the, and the company itself all benefit. So partly as a result, it has internal and external value from day one. We're always competing yeah. for scarce resources. Most firms acknowledge that people are their most important asset. This simply extends that priority in one of the highest leverage ways possible. Mm, love that. Thank you so much for making time, for sharing this wisdom. All of these links will be in the show notes for people to take a look and enjoy your book and, and your services. Um, just thank you for fixing, fixing work the way that you do. Thank you for having us. It's been delightful to be with you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. 
Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.